Welcome to the Academy of Neurologic Communication Disorders and Sciences podcast. My name is Michael Beal. I'm a speech-language pathologist and assistant professor at California State University, Northridge. In this episode, I talk to Dr. Rebecca Luthwaite about motor learning and more specifically about the influence of motivation and attention upon motor learning. Earlier this year, Dr. Luthwaite and her collaborator, Dr. Gabrielle Wolf at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, published a paper describing their theory of motor learning, which they called the optimal theory of motor learning. A link to this paper can be found in the show notes. Dr. Luthwaite received her PhD from the University of California, Los Angeles. She's Director of Rehabilitation Outcomes Management and Director of Research and Education in Physical Therapy at Rancho Los Amigos National Rehabilitation Center in Los Angeles. She's also an adjunct faculty member in the Division of Biokinesiology and Physical Therapy at the University of Southern California. Dr. Luthwaite's research focuses on the role of motivational enhancements in motor performance and learning in diverse individuals, from those undergoing physical rehabilitation to developing and high-performing athletes. To begin our conversation, I asked Dr. Luthwaite how she became interested in the role of motivation on motor learning and performance. I began with motivation uh, and motor performance many years ago as I um, actually did my doctoral dissertation at UCLA um, looking at children who were in youth sport programs Mm. and I was interested in enjoyment and anxiety and that kind of thing. But I did not apply it to motor performance and learning directly until I started collaborating with Gabrielle Wolf, with whom I produced this theory. And it was just uh, two fields working in parallel until we decided she actually asked for some advice on how I how to provide feedback to some research participants in a way that would allow her to still study what she was interested in. And when we did that, that was published back in 2010 now, um, we kind of saw an amazing story that we thought that what I was suggesting would be kind of a throwaway or an adjunct, but it turned out to be very influential in affecting both performance and learning. And so after that, we started doing a number of studies, which looked at some element of motivation and saw that, lo and behold, uh, it had an impact on performance. We kind of knew you could, you could influence things in a transitory way, yeah. but it was the learning effect that was really interesting. You could come back in a delayed retention test a day later, or you could try a different version of the task, a transfer task, and it was affecting how well people had learned or retained that um, motor skill. Right. And once we started seeing that, it burgeoned, and had we had many variations on the theme of how we might um, understand how, how motivation is actually affecting more permanent uh, motor capability. And, and your interests go beyond sports performance. It also includes rehabilitation and, and neurorehabilitation. Yes. I, I uh, happen to uh, work at Rancho Los Amigos National Rehab Center, and, and so I have a, a longstanding interest in neurorehabilitation, and certainly that area has been very affected by motor learning research right. over the last couple decades Mm. and that was sort of my entree there if they're interested in this and this is insight that could prove valuable to people recovering from uh, neuro injury well uh, you know it's a good place to put it I I certainly have um, worked with the spectrum of um, athletic types of motor behavior from children to adult and, and elite type athletes but I think you know, elite type neuro recoverers are well worth the effort. <laughs> yeah, yeah. As you guys know, and and so I, I um, the the com the common denominator is really the motor learning that all of those people have to go through to get good at what they want to do. 
or have to do. Yeah. And so um, once motor learning was the core and then motivation became important in the story of motor learning, that sort of um, is ubiquitously helpful, I think. Right, and that and led to this optimal theory, which really emphasizes the influence that motivation and some of the factors that yeah. increase or decrease motivation have on motor learning. I'm, I'm curious because you, you mentioned how you, you did this initial study with a Dr. Wolf mm -hmm. and there was a, a minor motivational component, or at least mm -hmm. in your mind, it was minor at, at the time. Yeah. And it's, I guess it's kind of taken over your life since then. <laughs> yeah. And we talked a little bit about this before we started the podcast, which is, it is kind of curious that in rehab in general, there isn't a lot of discussion of the role of motivation, even though when you speak to clinicians, they place a lot of emphasis on that in terms of interpreting why people do well or don't yeah. do so well. Why do you, do you have any ideas you why know, you think that's so? It's interesting because I think uh, most professionals, you know, be they speech therapists or physical therapists or occupational therapists, who work with people will readily, you know, uh, discuss the motivational um, influences on their patients. But I think many of them have learned to think about motivation in sort of trait-like ways. Mm -hmm. So they think about personality. And so if something doesn't work, it may be that person's personality-related motivation that's affecting mm -hmm. that. Um, but I think one of the new elements to this, this recent um, connection between motivation and motor learning or motivation and neurorehabilitation is simply that there are conditions of the clinical environment of the um, interaction of the therapist with the patient that can be altered and that produce situational motivational Impacts and if those situational impacts occur at in the same time someone is attempting to learn or produce a new movement or sound etc. That's the timing that matters in terms of whether it affects learning. And so by thinking of it not as uh, only a, a matter of, of long-standing individual differences between people in terms of motivated and unmotivated, but thinking in terms of what you can do in the instant to affect someone's motivation. And that if that's paired with their attempts to learn something or produce something, then that can have a lasting impact on their motor skill. Yeah. So yeah. it's that uh, connection, which motor learning always had. They were always focused on practice conditions. Right. How can people... And, they, and, and the motor learning literature kind of makes brief mention of motivation, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah, it, it was for the longest time in almost all the theories up till uh, our recent optimal theory. It was simply a temporary way you could affect someone's performance, but it didn't have any role in sustained learning. And so the, the other conditions of practice were thought to affect that, and this was something temporary. So if someone urged someone on during a performance that wasn't going to be there to affect their learning later, it was transitory, it would be gone. Mm. But once you started looking at, at the role of motivation in learning, then you could see it didn't go away. It had a sustained impact. Yeah, yeah. Before we go on to talking about optimal theory in, in more detail, I want to just backtrack a little bit on in this issue of personality. Mm -hmm. So my understanding is that in the motivation literature, there is some evidence that there are personality influences on people's motivation. But I guess what I hear you saying is that as far as what we do, with a, for lack of a better term, motivational intervention. It doesn't look any different for personality A versus personality B. And also we don't say that because personality A has some type of 
core motivational personality profile that we don't we don't try. Right. Um, I think there's definite influence of individual differences, but as the decades have gone by, I think that the interaction of those factors and the situation have become the focus. And it may be that someone perhaps doesn't gain as much sometimes because of their incoming personality, or perhaps they gain a lot. I mean, there certainly are individual differences at work even in the situation, but um, if the situation is well-constructed motivationally, you can override whatever they come in with. You could say, look, this is, uh, that was that, that's, you know, something that affects um, your engagement in other areas of your life, but this is different. This is a situation where you're trying to relearn how to um, articulate well, trying to gain your voice again. You're trying to um, recover your ability to communicate. And I think if you can sort of separate all those other things from here and now, and this is what we're about, the importance of the situation to the person is going to help to make them listen. And right. the way in which you construct the situation can make them listen better. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. I think um, I've chosen to say it's this immediate, brief, but kind of principled, hopefully well evidence based story that you can construct that is going to make a difference. It might make a little more difference to someone than another person, but it is going to make a difference. And you can override long-standing stories with these immediate circumstances. Mm. And I think the skill of a therapist is, in large part, learning to, first of all, figure out what, what pieces of evidence are really helpful here, yeah. and then to kind of be creative and construct something that taps that with their patient. Mm. So yeah. I think you can do a lot with the situation. Yeah, uh, I know in self-determination theory they call it the matching hypothesis, this idea that for individuals who have a more controlled orientation, in other words, they're more inclined to want somebody to take charge. Um, they might be in a more passive stance mm -hmm. versus what's considered the optimal scenario, which is you're autonomously oriented, right. you know, um, that there isn't a benefit towards behaving in a controlled way for a person who has this controlled orientation. They yeah. benefit also from supporting their autonomy. Yes, like I, I think that has been one of the lessons of, of self-determination theory over the years, that even though people come in there and maybe a little more control versus autonomously motivated, uh, give them the chance and they will also start to, to recognize and, and play out the impact of more autonomy. Yeah. I think it's rather fundamental. I mean, I, I don't even know that it's well explained by these very cognitive theories. I think it's simply we seem to need to begin and pursue life by pursuing you know, interesting things and things that we require skill at, etc. We're just sort of going in those directions. And so um, just tapping into that a little or supporting it or uncovering a way that it can come out again is something that affects everybody, with, no matter where they start. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, balance. could you, maybe this, maybe it's not possible, could you give us a summary of optimal theory? So optimal theory, which is, by the way, an acronym, not an assertion, <laughs> um, it, it stands for optimizing performance through intrinsic motivation and attention for learning. So optimal. Um, and it contains discussions of, of growing bodies of literature related to enhanced expectations for performance. Uh, autonomy support, which means how self-determining we can make an instant and, and perhaps grow that, and then attentional focus, where there's a large body of largest of them all in, in a very directed way, which says that when people consider 
think about and emphasize in their performance an external focus of their concentration type attention. So they think about not their body part moving, but the effect of the movement on the environment, perhaps, uh, that, that they do better. So an external focus is better, and there's, there's a good example of that work in um, a paper by Friedman, which uh, Gabby Wolf was an author on in 2007 in Speech, Language, and Hearing Science Journal. Mm. And I think that's a good example of using an external focus. But clearly a big body of work there, um, which suggests one of these two things is optimal. And it's not thinking about how to produce it muscularly or in terms of your movement dimensions. It's thinking about the effect of the movement. So, so in a speech context, it might be something like not paying attention to how I'm breathing, but maybe focusing on how loud I am. Yes, the sound quality is a good example of, of a movement effect in, in speech. I've had um, musicians talk about what they focus on that's external in their work may not be you know, the bowing across, uh, thinking about the movement of their arm across a string, but mm -hmm. either thinking about the bow or more as they get as they are more expert, the ex uh, movement effect is actually the tonal quality of the sound they produce. Mm. So I think that's very similar to uh, right. both in, in volume of uh, voice and and in you know the quality of the sound. Yeah, is a, it's a good way to think about it. So there are bodies of work in in terms of attentional focus, external focus. A positive expectation of an outcome, whether you produce it by feedback that someone is improving relative to their own performance, or they may be doing well relative to others recovering, or they may you may simply define what it looks like to get to be successful early that may be different than how you would define it later. Mm -hmm. So if you can just get out a sound. Mm -hmm. Any sound, yeah. you say, you know, let's let's consider that to be a victory right now. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. they get the sound out and you celebrate it, etc. So there's an enhanced expectation side to the story, which is diver very diverse. And then this autonomy supportive element, which pertains to whether people feel in control, whether they feel they have choice, whether they feel essentially that they're self and their opinion matters in the story. Mm. So it can be done by asking questions. So what did yeah. that feel like? Right. That's it's an invitation to bring yourself into the story and to be in charge of you're the only one that knows how you felt. So we need that. Right. right. And right. so it's a sort of a collaborative model. Mm. So these three areas uh, enhanced expectancies, autonomy, support, which in part relates to enhanced expectancies and also attentional focus that together contribute to what we call goal action coupling. So if your goal is to produce a song, for example, and you bring together confidence or that enhanced expectancies, a sense of autonomy in the situation, and a focus on the sound quality, for example, that engages the neural system in, in a more direct or more fluent coupling mm. of your musculature, whatever else is required to coordinate that sound and produce it. And you're not thinking about the nuts and bolts as they go in. You're thinking about the end product yeah. result. And so being confident, having autonomy, and focusing externally is just helpful for facilitating that goal action coupling for switching your network in the brain from thinking about something to doing something mm. Mm. and it sort of contributes in a sort of virtuous cycle to yeah. being able to do it better and right more. because now you're more successful right. and so your expectancies yes, go right. up yeah. etc yes. your your confidence and your abilities start to go up with with uh, autonomy support specifically, we're talking most a lot about at least 
from what I've gathered from your papers is a focus on choice mm -hmm. and giving people the choices in a broad range of things, whether it's choice of task or I think, if I'm remembering right, choice of feedback. Yes, yeah, um, definitely. Things like that. You know, when I was reading that, it strikes me that within the traditional motor learning principles kind of literature and I think the way therapists translate that, it's a lot of therapists being in control. Yes. Being in control of feedback schedules, type of feedback, task, random or blocked, things like that. Mm -hmm. Is that not good? In other words, do we need to allow patients to have choice about when they receive feedback, for right, example? If you want to optimize their... Uh, gains in, in movement coordination and performance and learning, you do want to provide some choice. But interestingly, it can be very small but respectful choices that you provide. And so you, the therapist has expertise. I think that it would be better if these kind of things happen in order for this skill to, uh, to move upward. But how can I purposefully, systematically introduce some opportunities for choice in a situation. Mm -hmm. So you might say, you might use your expertise to say, you know, generally we find when we can do this kind of thing, it's helpful. Sometimes this other thing works too. I'm thinking that in your case, I, I would recommend this. Mm -hmm. What do you think? Mm -hmm. So you never have to withhold expertise. Yeah. But the value of expertise is in knowing which things tend to work and which things don't. And you can, you know, convey it in very small things. And what you notice I just did is used a request for their insight or opinion or preference, which is another form of choice. Right. So I don't have to make, uh, make them the expert instantly. I can provide you know, a framework for a choice. I can, you know, recommend a choice. Or maybe that's not where they are right then. So the choice might be something about, would you like a glass of water before we start? Mm -hmm. Something that puts so people more at ease. It's okay. called incidental uh, choice. Mm -hmm. um, but it says, hey, you're a, real, you're a person here and we want to work together on this mm -hmm. as opposed to, I deliver from on high this insight that will cure you. Is there research showing that an incidental choice has a positive effect on? Yeah, we've, uh, we've done some studies with this. I think one that uh, is sort of interesting, we provided two groups of novice golfers who had not played golf before. One group was uh, had 60 practice trials, and every 10 trials, we offered them a choice of putting on a surface, P putting with one of three ball colors. You can either use the orange one, the yellow one, or the white one, which would you like? So they chose. Mm -hmm. There was a yoked group who, for every participant who had a choice, somebody was yoked to them, and they were provided with the yellow ball for these 10 trials. Right. So there were six choices in all of which ball color you wanted to use. And the group that had the choice learned better, came back a, a day later and putted better, more accuracy than the group that was yoked, even though they had the same balls right. timed to be provided in the same sequence at the same time in the learning stage but it was the choice and not the ball that mattered there was no there was no advantage to choosing one color or another and we we actually followed that with another study in which we said well how incidental can you get because we knew ball color didn't really affect putting but it could be believed that it might so they engaged in it so in this next study, we had participants on a stability platform, which is a very challenging balance task. 
And people have to learn how to control their movements so that they keep the balance platform still. It's on an axis, um, and it, it uh, can go precipitously side to side mm. until you learn how to control this thing. Right. And uh, so that was the primary task. And before we had them engage in trying to learn how to do this task, we offered one group a choice about what their second task might be. So we said, do you want to do this for grip force task or do you want to do this other task where you have to time a light coming down a runway? So that'll be your second task. You do it after you do this balance task. So that was one choice they got. They picked, I want to do the force grip. The second thing that we did was we had two prints by the artist Renoir on a table in the laboratory. And we said to them as they were coming in, we're trying to make a decision between which of these prints to hang on the laboratory wall. Which print, which photo, which picture should we hang? And they, they chose. And they pondered it and they chose. Mm -hmm. uh, and then they proceeded to see in the background which of the two second tasks would be done or they choose. So a, a yoke group was simply told, oh, well, we'll be doing this group task next, if that was what their counterpart had chosen, and we're going to hang this print on the laboratory wall. So it's just kind of an incidental conversation on the way in. And contrary to what many have thought, the, that those two choices, uh, the only difference between the groups, and they produce better learning on the balance skill. <laughs> yeah. Why... why uh... Why does choice have this effect, even when it's incidental? Well, if you think about it in one way, you might say, you know, people who are asked, which print should we hang? They're saying, well, you're treating me like, you know, a full person who has an opinion here. Mm. Um, so maybe it sort of it elevates in a very general way your confidence that you can do whatever it's going to ask of you. Or maybe it's uh, something that is happening at an implicit level in your nervous system, which is triggering a sense that you're in, you're in charge here. It's not, you're not in question, you'll be able to do whatever. We don't really know, mm. but we suggest, we think that it's probably not um, a laborious cognitive process that's going on. It's the meaning that's associated. I'm okay. I don't have to fight. I don't have to resist because I am in charge of my own actions now. Mm -hmm. Something very simple. Can choice be negative? In other words, can a choice be stressful? I think it can, which is, if it creates a sense of incompetence, mm. I think that's the wrong choice. So mm. on, the, on the upper bound of choice, it's something which causes stress or uh, uncertainty because they don't feel capable of making a good choice. Right. Um, and on the lower bound, it's something that's so trivial as to be disrespectful. Uh, right. So right. anything in the middle, I think, is going to work. Um, and obviously in therapy, you have many opportunities for that. In fact, you know, you could think of therapeutic session is involving an infinite number of choices yeah, and you're really yeah. just picking out a few opportunities to create a little choice that makes sense in the circumstance and is respectful and um, is not too much yeah. um, but once you, you know so I say pick two good options so it doesn't matter and perhaps the option is you know could we talk about probably doing two things today this task and this task, what's your preference? Which one should we start with? Right. See, we're going to do them both anyway, assuming there's no big effect of order. Yeah. That's a good choice. So you're choosing between two good things. You had plants, those made sense and are small. The other, that is the second point. Um, start small and yeah. get into larger, more effortful type choices for somebody as as you gain as you gain confidence in their ability to respond also right so early on in the rehab process our patients really don't know what to expect from us or from themselves mm -hmm. 
course, our goal is to have some type of real collaborative process, but maybe in the beginning, we focus more on that sweet spot of incidental I choice, and then, a bad thing. Yeah. And then, and then later on, on, the more consequential right. choices. So, you know, if someone said to me, okay, I'm going to give you this choice, and it is to, uh, you have free reign in how you uh, reconstruct the Golden Gate Bridge. And fine, that's a great choice if I was an architect and really was prepared right. to reconstruct it, but it's totally out of my league. So that yeah. is uh, not a good choice for me right. at that time. And I, so I think really just make it very, very small yeah. as you start. And for some people, you will immediately go, like that, uh, your, your opportunity will be, okay, it looks like... Um, you know, you, this might be an area where you have a little, a little more challenge right now uh, than this one. But what do you think? Should we go after this challenge, or should we first do this thing? And so that is a little more relevant to the particular task at hand. And I think um, you'll know when someone is ready for that. Yeah. And it's typically after maybe you've collaborated over a few sessions, you yeah. might get there. Yeah. Um, but I think it's something, you know, individual. And uh, some people can start out quite strong, but right. I think the more success happens when you start out small and then grow it. Yeah. In your paper, you, you described uh, another way that, I think you kind of alluded to this, why choice is helpful, and I liked this little pearl. And that was that choice helps people feel more confident because the, in more control. Mm -hmm. right? In other words, if I give my patient a, an array of choices that are have something to do with treatment, right? mm -hmm. we're at that point, their, their choices are probably going to reflect maybe something that they do have more confidence that they can do. It may well. Yeah. I mean, it may also reflect if they're, um, they know that they have a certain problem and they're there with you to try to solve that problem they yeah. may actually say i don't know what to do about this yeah. i need your help um and you say great let's let's see what we can do and so i would start in that situation with all right can you uh, it'll really help me if you can give me a uh an insight as to what you're experiencing what did that that feel like or what did that feel like yeah. so it's using the opportunity to get preference, which right. is a form of choice, a form of autonomy support. Um, so I think those kind of things can be really helpful and somebody may choose to go after it from the beginning. And most people though will probably start with their strength. They'll yeah. say, I want to go this way, which is fine because I think creating a sense uh, and an early sense of success you have control here, that's not in question. Mm -hmm. You know, when people come into a clinician's office, it can be a very weird thing. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's not weird to the person, the professional there, because that's what they do every day. But mm -hmm. this person comes in, never been in a speech therapist's office, and they don't know what to expect. Is this a place where I'm going to feel trapped, where I'm going to feel incompetent? You know, they're already vulnerable. So any, any of these small things make a difference because they're so vulnerable, you can only help if you can tap that. And so knowing that weirdness is the norm for them, mm. I think putting them at ease uh, with the sense, don't worry, you don't have to fight this. This is, we're gonna collaborate. We're gonna take this further. We're gonna make a difference is what they need to know. Yeah. And and so small things can make a big difference when you're feeling like already in the hole when it comes to my autonomy. You know, am I uh, a person in the world who can do what they need to do or am I compromised? And so you're immediately saying, oh, you're a person. Yeah, yeah. You, you talked about also uh, expectancies. Mm -hmm. Having a, a positive role. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, this is sort of a... a fairly large category of things, but certainly we know from a lot of um, neuroscience that providing rewards to people for a given activity or action can have an immediate boost in their decision to, to perform. 
It's not the one that I uh, would recommend because it has a short-lasting impact, mm. and it's not something you want to be doing. Here, I'll pay you five dollars for every sound right, you make. Right, right, right. It's, it's, but it does show. It does reveal what is operating when people anticipate a positive outcome or a positive experience, mm-hmm. which I think you could say, and well, positive experience might well be being able to produce a sound I haven't been able to produce. Right. That is a positive experience. So the anticipation of positive experience, however you help people gain that, and I think one of the main ways is really through affecting their confidence. And that's by you know, ensuring that they see progress, preferably even numerical progress, which helps. Um, changes their confidence, changes their expectation that when I do this again, things will be good. This, mm-hmm. will, this will be a good reward. And it turns out that um, it's the anticipation of a positive experience, not the actual receipt of a positive experience that matters. Hmm. Um, because it powers up the system, likely through a dopamine response. And you can get that by having... Uh, a sense of control, um, for example, the placebo effect seems very heavily effect, uh, uh, accounted for by this dopaminergic release when you get uh, a sense of a positive outcome expectation. Hmm. So whether it's con- self-confidence in the task or whether it's a belief that a good thing will happen, that belief triggers the release. And when you pair it with a movement attempt, you get a better movement attempt. And if you keep doing that, um, they keep thinking, I'm in control and I feel more confident now. You keep pairing that, you get more successful performance, maybe because people are not holding on so tightly, cognitively controlling everything, but they're letting go. They're letting their movement system operate. You get better performance and you get better learning. Does that mean as therapists that somehow we have to manage expectancies? You know, there's, it's a very common um, thought that it's better to be realistic than optimistic. Yeah. Um, I think this story is it's better in the moment of attempts at learning and, and movement learning to be more on the optimistic side than it is to be realistic. But I think mm-hmm. you in another way of thinking about it, are creating these little opportunities to gain this success by using your expertise to frame the task at hand. So you are, in effect, managing expectancies. But another way of thinking about managing expectancies that we have um, shown to be helpful is to think about what will... What does the process of recovery or of learning a new skill involve? Many people don't come to the situation thinking that it's fixable and changeable. They come to it thinking, I've had this thing, bad thing happen to me, and I don't know whether I can recover. Because maybe they haven't put, been in a situation where they can see progress yet. Yeah. But... So we call that conception of ability in this case, maybe the conception of what it takes to recover from a speech impediment. Mm. So so if people think it takes effort, some strategies which we can work on together, and just practice, Mm -hmm. then they're in a better expectation of a positive experience or outcome than if they think, I can't change this. So that area of motivation work does seem to be relevant in this expectation. It's sort of a slow developing one, but it buffers people against what is, you know, what anybody could look at and say, okay, there's a lot of failures, some success, failure, success, but it helps people not look at those failures as being particularly impactful in what will happen to them. It helps them think about, it's just part of the process. So they're interpreting their failures in a different way. not even failures. Yeah. At this point, we had a brief interruption in our interview. We had to stop recording. When we pick it up here, uh, Dr. Luthwaite continues to talk about the role of confidence and expectations. So uh, the expectation that something will be positive once you try it 
or the confidence that you have that this something good will happen buffers you against um, the occasional digression. And so you, you simply say you redouble your efforts, you try again, but you feel confident that good things will happen. And so uh, this conception of ability, this confidence go together in keeping you on a, on a pathway to uh, skill or recovery. And uh, you need that to keep going and you need that to free your system to engage fully. Right. So that kind of leads us towards this external versus internal focus. Yes. So uh, back about 15 years ago or so, uh, Gabriel Wolf came to this conclusion while actually uh, trying to, to learn a windsurfing move. Mm-hmm. where she struggled and struggled and struggled for a while trying to follow the instructional uh, uh, videos or, or uh, inst- instructions that people would say, you know, move your arm this way, bend your elbow, blah, blah, blah. And she struggled and struggled, kept falling in the water. And she said, forget this. I am going to focus on moving the board in a certain way. And so she did that and almost immediately began to have success. So this occurred to her that it's thinking about the outcome, the uh, movement effect that might be way more helpful than thinking about how to produce that with muscles and angles and things of that sort. So that led to now over a hundred studies later, literally with everything from force production to movement accuracy to uh, looking at the coordination of musculature and you find there's less co-contraction while people focus externally than when they try to focus on how to move their muscles to make that movement happen. And uh, definitely has a, a successful outcome in the area of concentrating on an external form of what you want to happen even in a, in a speech situation. So it seems like if you can imagine, um, and this, this interestingly can happen not just with an um, observable external event, but you know something that's hidden um, has still got perhaps a, an analogous movement or you can imagine uh, a form that you're trying to achieve but not thinking about how your muscles will achieve it. Mm. Uh, you can imagine a sound, which I think is very relevant. You know, so if I have this tonal quality, then that's what I'm trying to achieve with my voice. And if I have this one, it's not so hot. So you have a mental picture yeah, so of a kin. And, yeah. and interestingly, for a while, people kept trying to think vision was part of this story. It is not. It's th- this can be achieved by thinking and concentrating on, not by seeing and necessarily. You could cer- certainly do an external thing with, with sight, but that's not really the point. It's imagining, concentrating. Why, why does an external focus for one of my patients, let's say, hypothetically, focusing on the clarity of their speech would be better than them thinking about where they're placing their lips, tongue, or jaw for a sound that's problematic for them or something like that. Mm-hmm. Well, it, looks, it, it appears that once you start trying to control these little elements, you kind of seize up, so to <laughs> okay. speak. You get this constraint on your movement, mm-hmm. and it t- tends to promulgate so that as you start thinking about, okay, I need to move my tongue in this direction, moving your tongue becomes harder. And it's not therefore part of the fluid motion that you're trying to achieve. So don't think about it. Think about what would happen if this tongue were to move in this way. And maybe the person can't produce the sound yet, so the therapist does. And then see what you could do to get that. And how, how did that sound? Right. Close. So the so speech is an automatic thing, right? I don't think about my speech. Right. So my nervous system is very capable of doing what it needs to do. Right. 
So he's saying something that when I start to pay attention to that, I'm kind of just getting in the way of yeah. a process. You're breaking down automaticity. Mm. And you're right, you know, speech is a good example of what has become automatized. Right. And there are many movements where essentially the goal is to automate it so that you don't have to think about how to produce it. You just, you think about when to produce it or mm. under what circumstances to produce it, but you don't think about how to produce it. So thinking about how is not helpful. Right. Thinking about what you want to achieve is helpful. And then your nervous system will do what it needs yes, to do. Right. Yes. I see. Is, is this internal focus akin to being overly self-conscious? I mean, you yeah. know, in the, in the kind of the late way we would think mm-hmm. of things. I think so. I think yeah. it's, it, you know, one of the hypotheses to be, to be explored further is that when you start thinking about how to move your tongue, for example, there's a key Two words there, your tongue, my tongue. It's a self-related word. And we know that, you know, the nervous system is very tuned to self-related issues so that you can say, I did it, not somebody else did it. This is part of me, not somebody else's hand. And so essentially we're very tuned to the self. So anytime we trigger that processing of of information related to the self, it's essentially not task helpful. It mm. is a diversion of neural activity to take care of something about ourselves. And so in a way, that person who has to process the concept of my tongue versus uh, I'll make something up, uh, imagine a piece of, of tape on my tongue and I'm trying to force it up in my mouth I can think about the tape moving upward um, and that will produce that tongue moving the tape upward better mm-hmm. than if I think about how to get this tongue to move this tape. Right. So the right. my body part, fill in the blank, is not a way to go to create automaticity. In fact, you want to lose that consciousness of that, of self and that, and keep the focus on what the effect is, the tape moving upward. Are people who have more of this uh, kind of belief that their abilities are fixed, Mm -hmm. do they tend towards more internal focus? Well, we have some, some questionnaire evidence and some anecdotal comments made by people in uh, situations where they feel more less confident, more self-aware, et cetera, that they, that sort of, they start saying, I was focusing on how to move my body mm-hmm. instead of, for example, in the situation where we had the stability platform, people who were doing well and confident and more externally focused, even though that that's sort of a, a not part of the story, but they tended to say they were focused on keeping the platform stable, not on how their feet moved on the platform. So people are more prone to mention a body part, a self-related term, when they have an internal focus. And even when you don't directly affect that, when they have low confidence, they tend to, to start to break down what they're doing and try to recover in a way of, I need to move my arm this way or do this. So they tend to go to how strong that relationship will be. But I do know that an external, <clears throat> excuse me, attentional focus will produce more effective movement. Mm-hmm. And people will recognize eventually that they have more effective movement and they will become more confident as a result. So mm-hmm. there is a connection between this external attentional focus and the expect enhanced expectancy that helps promote the fluidity yeah. so they, they tend to work together so we've got supporting autonomy choice is a big part of that increasing positive expectations for outcomes and an external focus versus an internal focus is there an additive effect here in other words if i focus on providing autonomy support and choice and paying attention to constructing my 
therapy tasks. So patients have success, expectations are built. I'm guessing that these add up to something more than what they would be individually. And that's an interesting kind of empirical finding. So far, we don't have many, many studies about this, but it seems as if you don't want to say, oh, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a little more comfortable with the external focus thing, so I'm going to use that and never mind the rest of it. It looks like they do kind of work in concert and in an additive fashion so far. So we have studies in which we have um, had a comparison of, say, autonomy support plus an enhanced expectancy, and the group that got both of those did better than either group that that got only one of those two features. We have crossed it with attentional focus and autonomy support, attentional focus and expectancy, and in each case, the group that got two of those did better than any of the single groups, even though those things had been important um, in other studies. We have one study um, that's in the works where it may turn out that having all three of those things is more helpful to learning and performance than having only two of those things. So it looks as if they don't bump each other off and they, perhaps because they're affecting slightly different uh, distributions of the dopaminergic system, that they can sort of add up to a higher dose, so to speak, without uh, affecting each other. But so far, so good. And so far, nothing suggests we only want to go with one of these, for sure, that a number of different factors will help you bring it together. In in terms of the research you've done, you haven't focused on speech, motor speech behavior. Mm -hmm. There's this one study by Friedman Mm -hmm. et al. in 2007 that looked at um, oral non-speech behaviors and internal versus external focus, which the results were consistent Mm -hmm. with what you've Mm -hmm. found in other areas. But um, in general, there isn't any reason to expect that these principles, the effects of motivation are not applicable to any motor behavior. Is that right? I I think that's true. And of course, you always want to to see the evidence in your own domain. And I would go for that. But I think um, nothing has suggested that um, these sort of core dimensions of movement um, are not relevant to smaller movements, more complex movements, highly coordinated movements. I mean, that's exactly where this sits, mm-hmm. that uh, you know, dimensions of force, of velocity of a movement, of accuracy of a movement, of timing of a movement, all of those things seem to be affected by these optimal factors. Right. And so and, I see no reason why it wouldn't. Yeah, and and uh, patient populations too. Yes, um, and we we've looked at, um, for example, autonomy support and an external focus of attention in patients with Parkinson's disease, and both of those factors help them. Mm-hmm. Um, in stroke, people have looked at attentional focus, at enhanced expectancies. That's been helpful. Um, there's no reason to believe that the kind of motor problem that somebody might have, with the exception of how powerful the ablation of their movement capability might right. be, if there's some residual left in the system to build with, these are factors that I think will only help. Um, I, I can't see them affecting things in a in a different way. At first I thought maybe accuracy is something that is not so helped by a dopamine response, but I that has not held up. It also seems to be the case that throwing or um or very fine timing is important. Yeah. All of those things seem to be helped. Where's your where's your research heading? Well, there are a number of different directions. Um One is uh, collaborating with people who can explore the neuroscience of what is happening so we can get a handle on how you turn confidence, 
and attentional focus and autonomy support into this goal action coupling effect and how that helps the system switch efficiently, fluidly between the needs of attending to a new task. Uh, that that's a critical one to help support this. But I also think that there are dimensions to this, uh, such as even facilitating um, maximal performance, even in a clinical exam. If you want to know what someone is capable of, are traditional forms of nice but not necessarily optimized situations probably aren't eliciting all that that person is capable of. So I think trying different assessments uh, under autonomy supportive versus non-autonomy supportive conditions will help uh, illuminate what they're really capable of. And to them, that sense of progress could be very important. And maybe a useful bit of information for the clinician in terms of understanding which factors might influence their performance and they can focus on right, those. Right, right. I mean, if somebody is, is sensitive, and I think most, almost all people will be to yeah, these things, yeah. and that's their magic, is the, yeah. the, the universal issues, that you can put people in a state where there's more choices here, and that really facilitates their performance. Yeah. Well, I can imagine a scenario where you have a family member who you're asking to mm. engage in helping do some home practice, yes where it would be nice to illustrate for them that they need to be autonomy supportive. Yes. And yes. this is not just because it's nice, right? but because it actually does happen. Yes, I, I think it's a very good one, but also a really uh, um, challenging one yeah. to change the behavior of people. In fact, we have just gone through a, a big uh, clinical trial in stroke rehabilitation where part of our investigational intervention was embedding little choices. And one of the um, small pieces of this larger story is that we um, provided an action plan for people. And it was about how to communicate what you'd like to have happen to your family or friends so they can help you recover. And we suggested, you know, first you need to identify what do you really want? Do you want someone that is all over you? Uh, yeah. And some people might say yes, yeah. but most people will say, well, no, I want encouragement. I just don't want negativity. Right. I don't want people saying, oh, you forgot to use your affected arm. So that's not good. You know, so. But choosing, choosing to yes. have someone take control is, is a choice too. Yes, absolutely. Exactly. I mean, yeah. some people will choose it. Interestingly, we found when we began, most of our research clinicians felt that patients expected them to take over, and they're not going to want all this. Yeah. But in fact, they learned that some people you least expected were ready and eager to take over and to think through something. They just haven't been asked. That's right. You know, it's not part of the, the culture to do that. So they just had to learn a new cultural expectation was here we collaborate here you get asked here you know you decide i think when i made that really conscious decision to give more choice to be genuinely more collaborative Mm -hmm. i saw that first of all there were so many opportunities yes to do that but also that in some sometimes it was difficult not because of anything that had to do with my patient per se, but because of I've been conditioned, I guess, in some ways mm-hmm. to think that I have certain responsibilities, that this is what it looks like to be a professional, et cetera, yes. et cetera. Yes. You know, and giving up some of that control is changing the picture a little bit yeah, yeah, of what, what your role is. I think uh, that in this is a... Uh, a study known as the eye care study that I was referring to about stroke rehab, <clears throat> that was one of the most um, commented on aspect of the role that we asked our research therapists to play in following these principles related to engagement and you know control and confidence building and things like that is you know, but they expect me to do that. They expect this is my role, and you know, actually people. People who all of a sudden discover that they're being looked at in a you know uh, an equal partnership, 
respond to that too. And yeah. they respond more quickly than most of our therapists thought was going to happen. And maybe they end up being less passive. Yes. And therefore, you know, their adherence to your recommendation is much better. They are more self-initiating in terms of uh, trying to manage their situation in recommended ways. And I think, A, they feel better. So even if that were the only outcome, and it's not, yeah. you know, that would be of value because uh, especially to a professional who you know depends upon patient satisfaction etc to their gainful employment that is a, an important thing but that's definitely not the only thing it's affecting the effect of this of yeah your relationship yeah. with the patient yeah right. their own satisfaction with the work yeah. so really it's adding a layer of subtle skill to what a therapist does how can I get that to come out of his mouth, not mine? Yeah. That's not that hard. Yeah. With a little use of these techniques of autonomy support or yeah. expectation. Interesting. Well, Dr. Luthwaite, uh, thank you very much. The, um, your paper on the optimal theory is a, a really interesting read, and I encourage uh, all the listeners to check it out. What journal was that in? It's in... Um, Psychological Bulletin and Review. I'll post the link to the article. We do have a website that people might be interested in. We have some videos and examples. Um, It's uh, www.optimalmotorlearning.com. Oh, great. I didn't know that. Excellent. Well, again, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the ANCDS podcast. For information about the Academy of Neurologic Communication Disorders and Sciences, please go to ancds.org. You can also listen to our other podcast episodes there or subscribe to us on iTunes. And if you like these podcasts, please consider giving us a review. Thank you.